Here we are at the beginning of a new year, 2024. This year in 2024, we're going to read the Bible together, Genesis to Revelation. We're going to do it as a congregation, and we're going to be using as our guide um, a book by McGray de Vega called The Bible Year, A Journey Through Scripture in 365 Days. And McGray is a pastor here, a United Methodist pastor here in Florida. He's a bit of a United Methodist rock star. Uh, he and I were part of a small group that went to Israel. February. And when we got to the airport in New York, um, there was another group of United Methodists also going to Israel. They were from Arkansas. And they flipped out a little bit about McGray being with us. They like, you know, ran over to him and then kind of stopped and then very slowly approached him and like, you McGray to Vega, can we have a selfie? You know, it was, it was really cute. He would, he would hate me telling that story. Uh, he actually once served at Bethel United Methodist Church here in Tallahassee, but now he serves at Hyde Park UMC in Tampa. And he's written lots of excellent studies. And I'm really glad that we're going to do um, the Bible year together as a congregation. Here comes some more friends. Come in, come in. So trying to read the Bible in, uh, read the whole Bible in a year is a departure for me. Um, I actually have said many times in the past that it's not really such a great goal to read through the whole Bible in a year. And I said that because when we do that, we can make reading scripture just another thing on our to-do list. And we don't really need another thing on our to-do list. Our to-do lists are really complete. We don't really need to add just another thing to do. It's much better to read scripture in a way that opens our hearts and our minds so that the Holy Spirit can speak to us and so that we can respond to the Holy Spirit. But the thing is, we're not just reading in a year this year. We're doing it together as a congregation, as a church family. Collectively, we will be giving our hearts and minds the chance to hear from and respond to the Holy Spirit. And also by doing it together, we don't just hold each other accountable, we hold each other, right? So there are going to be times you're not going to get the reading done, but it's okay. Because somebody else in our family will get the reading done and together we will get through it all as a community. And not only that, but we are using this reading plan uh, as our guide for worship planning. And I normally use the revised common lectionary. So again, this is a departure for me. We're going to use this um, as our as our guide for worship planning, which means the year might have a little bit of a different rhythm to it. Of course, we'll still have Lent and Easter and Pentecost and Trinity Sunday and Christ the King Sunday and Advent. We'll do all of those things, but we'll do it with our reading plan in mind. So we'll be moving, like I said, from Genesis to Revelation. And I think that having a little bit of a different rhythm will be another way for us to open our hearts and our minds to what God is doing and what God is inviting us to do. In order to do this, we have to start somewhere, right? We have to start somewhere. Our new calendar year, 2024, has to start somewhere. Our reading plan has to start somewhere. We have to start somewhere. So it just so happens that in our reading plan this week, it called for us to read, invited us to read the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And these chapters are foundational to understanding the rest of Scripture. They are they are foundational to understanding who God is and who we are in relation to God. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have creation and perfection and sin and redemption. 
we have um, the Garden of Eden, and we have Cain and Abel, and we have uh, Noah's Ark, and the rainbow, and the Tower of Babel. Genesis tells us that we do indeed start somewhere. We start from the creative impulses of our God, who is like an artist, a poet. God is a poet who speaks creation into existence. Anytime we're reading the Bible and, and something is repeated, then we know we need to pay attention to that, right? God is repeated so that we won't miss it. There's something in there that God wants to make sure we, we understand or see or hear. In the first 29 verses of the Bible, God speaks 14 times. 14 times. If you want to look at the scripture um, in your bulletin, uh, you can see at verse 3, the, the, hmm, it starts on the fourth line, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then the last sentence, God called the light day, and the darkness God called night. Same happens in verse 6, God said, verse 8, God called, verses 9, 10, 11, 14, 20, 22, 24, 26, 28, and 29 all describe God speaking creation into existence. God speaks something new that never was before. God isn't running an assembly line, or manufacturing objects for God's enjoyment. No, God speaks to create. God speaks in ways that finally will be heard. This ancient text tells us that we start somewhere. We start with God speaking us into existence. You know what else is repeated throughout Genesis 1? That when God created, God saw that it was good. After each day, each movement of creation, God pauses and sees that it is good. In what Genesis describes as the first six days of creation, there are seven times when God says creation is good. And finally, finally, on the sixth day, God saw everything that had been spoken into existence and said, it was very good. God spoke you into existence and says, you are good, very good. Sometimes people get kind of tied up in knots about Genesis. Uh, Genesis 1, but but really all of the book of Genesis, all of the Bible for that matter. Uh, If if you found yourself doing that or you find yourself doing that as you read through Genesis, I want to invite you just to take a deep breath and let go of those knots. Don't get tied up in knots about Genesis. Don't get tied up in knots thinking you have to figure it all out or you have to have it all figured out. Let's let go of the need to defend Genesis as if it's a scientific text or or a book of, of history because Genesis is so much more than that. This is an ancient text that that faces one of the, the basic questions, the basic mystery of life. Where did we start? And it doesn't answer that question in a purely theological way or a purely scientific way, or a purely mythological way, or a methodological way. We, we have no adequate word to really describe what Genesis is giving us, except maybe poetry. Poetry is maybe the closest we can get to defining it. If this text were purely mythological, it would tell us that the real action 
was with God or more likely a, a collection of gods, a pantheon of gods. In other ancient mythology from the time of ancient Israel, from their neighbors, there was plenty of it, plenty of creation myths from Egypt, from Mesopotamia. In those myths, in those stories, only the gods matter. That's what we find in mythology, that only the gods matter. Sometimes humans are created to serve the gods or to be amusement for the gods. And in the midst of that, the one true God steps in and says, it's much better than that. You were spoken into existence, not for God's amusement, but for your own purposes. If this Genesis text were scientific text, it would, it would tell us that, that the world contains its own mysteries and that it's, it can be understood in terms of itself. There would be no reference to this transcendent force, a transcendent deity. The poetry of Genesis 1 doesn't narrate how creation happened exactly, as if God is interested in telling us God's method or how the world came into existence. That would be like looking at an incredible piece of art and only thinking about the techniques that were used, right? The Bible is concerned with God's lordly intent, not God's technique. And just like a poet who speaks a beautiful poem into existence or a composer who creates an incredible symphony or a painter who paints a masterpiece doesn't want us to go and, and look at the work and just think about the mechanism of how it was created. So too, Genesis gives us the poetry, the masterpiece, not the method. So God speaks us into existence in a poetic and utterly true way. Genesis is neither history, nor science, nor myth, nor methodology. It is a proclamation of God's creative power and desire. We have to start somewhere. So let's start by not reducing Genesis to a science book or a history book or even a book of mythology or a tale about methodology because Genesis is so much more than any of those labels. These first 11 chapters of Genesis affirm that the ultimate meaning of creation is to be found in the heart and purpose of God, the creator. And these first 11 chapters of Genesis affirm that God is good and creation is good. You've heard about original sin, but Genesis reminds us of original righteousness. We start with God speaking everything into existence and calling it good, very good. Genesis isn't just the story of the world in the beginning. It is the story of the God who created the beginning. Genesis tells us that God is about beauty and order, goodness and creativity, generosity and life. Yes, this is the God who is worthy of our worship and praise. Humanity lived in perfect harmony with God, nature and each other. All through Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, all the way to Genesis chapter 3. We don't make it very far in scripture before humanity finds a way to mess things up. You know what they say? This is why we can't have nice things, you know? We don't, we don't make it very far in, in scripture at all. A serpent shares a little bit of knowledge with the two humans living in the Garden of Eden, and we as a species quickly learn that a little bit of knowledge is, in fact, a dangerous thing. The serpent says, 
If you eat of the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Until that point, humanity only knew good. Humanity did not know evil. But the idea of being like the God they love sounded good to them, I guess. So they ate of the forbidden fruit, and it turned out the serpent was right. They then knew not only good, but they knew good and evil. And guess what? We couldn't handle it. We are made in God's image, but we are not capable of being God. Genesis tells us that humans have a tendency to believe that we have what it takes to be God, but, but we don't. We have to start somewhere, but where we start is with biting off more than we can chew, literally. We get in over our heads and we feel naked and ashamed. God says that Adam, Adam, the one made in God's image from the dust of the earth, has become like God, knowing good and evil. Now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So in an act of mercy, God casts Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden so that they would not have to live forever knowing good and evil. They would not have to live forever knowing that they are separate from God. But notice what God doesn't do. God does not scrub the image of God from humanity. God doesn't say, well, that did not go as I expected. I'm going to just wipe this out and start over. No, God acts with mercy and chooses to stay in relationship with humanity. It's a new relationship, a new relationship between God and humanity. They no longer walk together in the garden in perfect harmony. It's different than what it was in the Garden of Eden. But God still says, you know, by my grace and my power, I will help them make the right choices. Ultimately, this is going to lead to a Messiah, to God becoming human, to redeem all of creation. In the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the Christians in Ephesus, and he says that Jesus is God the Father's plan for the fullness of time. He says, all things will be gathered up in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And this plan goes all the way back to the beginning of the beginning. God authors life. God speaks creation into existence. And do you see that God does it without even a hint of authoritarianism? or control. If God was a harsh God, an authoritarian God, God just wouldn't give us free will. God wouldn't let us, wouldn't let us as creation participate in creation, wouldn't let us participate in redemption. But our God does. Our God invites us to participate in the redemption of the world, of making the kingdom of God a reality here on earth. God speaks not of must be, but of let be. God isn't one who reigns by fiat or remoteness, but instead, God reigns with gracious self-giving. We see this with our creator God, and we see it in how God handles Adam and Eve, even Cain, right? When Cain murders Abel, we see this with the God made manifest in Jesus Christ, the ultimate act of self-giving, becoming human and going to the cross and dying, but rising from the dead, that we would know that nothing has to separate us from God. 
We have to start somewhere. And we start with a creator who gives us freedom. We start with a creator whose sovereign rule is expressed in terms of faithfulness and patience. And yes, anguish. Humanity is given dominion over creation, not for the purpose of exploiting it, not for the purpose of abusing it. God does not exploit or abuse us, and we are made in the image of God, so we too should not exploit or abuse. We're given dominion to secure the well-being of every creature and all of creation and each other. The role of the human is to see to it that creation becomes fully the creation willed by God. Our creator creates and then puts creation in charge of creation. This is incredible. God creates without ever grasping for power or control over us. And when we live into the image of God, we do not grasp for power or control. Because grasping power cannot create. Grasping power cannot enhance creation. We see in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 that grasping brings death. In Jesus Christ, we're offered a new discernment of who God is and of what humankind is called to be. The striking feature of Jesus is that he didn't look after his own interests, right? He was always looking after the interests of others. He was looking after even our interests. That's an echo of God's act of creation. Creation is God's decision not to look after God's self, but to focus God's energy and purpose on creation. God is in the midst of writing the poem of your life, of speaking your life into existence. And God lets you be the director. God is handing you the divine pencil and telling you that you must write your story. God has a story in mind for you. It is an epic story, beautiful story of love and mercy and grace. But God is an artist, not a dictator. By Genesis chapter 6, every thought of humankind is evil all the time. We go from knowing only good to knowing good and evil to knowing only evil. But we learn that God will stop at nothing to give humanity a second chance, another chance. So Noah's Ark, the flood story, you know, we can read that in terms of what's lost. And there is a lot of destruction and loss. There's no denying it. But really, the story of Noah is a story of God choosing redemption. God chooses to continue to speak this poem of creation into existence. God doesn't send the, the flood with vengeance or malice. Genesis chapter 6, verse 6 says that God was grieved to God's heart but God will stop at nothing to allow humanity to keep going so that complete redemption can happen. That's what God does with you and with me. God doesn't give up on us. The waters of God's grace wash over us in baptism. We had a go our gospel reading today about Jesus being baptized. And actually the flood in Genesis is foundational to the way we understand baptism. Sin is powerful. The human tendency to try to grasp for more, to bite off more than we can chew, to try to be like God, that tendency is powerful and destructive. But nothing is more powerful 
than the waters of God's grace that wash over you and through you and give you another chance to join God in speaking life into existence. We have to start somewhere, and where we start is with God creating everything we have and everything we are and declaring it to be good. We have to start somewhere, and where we start is with God creating humanity in the image of God and saying, this is very good. And even though time and again we mess up, we take creation for granted, we grasp for more, we act as if we are the gods of our own lives, we bite off more than we can chew. Again and again, God responds by continuing to speak life into us. God responds to our human sinfulness by offering us another chance to join God in creating something beautiful. God's intended purpose for creation and for us is to live up to the goodness with which we are created. The stories of creation and the fall and the flood the fall of the Tower of Babel, they repeat a cycle that we will see again and again in the Bible. And if we're honest, it's a pattern we see again and again in our own lives. God calls us to be our best selves. We obey for a season, but then we fall prey to sin and disobedience. But God works to redeem us and bring us back for reconciliation. The opening chapters of Genesis remind us that God's goodness and power is real. They remind us that we have responsibility as the recipients of God's goodness and power. God is offering you the divine pencil. What story will you write? Amen.